0: On Good Friday, let me just invite you now. This is something we do, a Good Friday service uh, uh, every year, but this is going to be different. This is going to be an experiential walkthrough, and we've done these in the past. It's been a number of years ago, and they're incredible for the family to go through together, for your friends to go through together. I want you to uh, look at it like this. It's going to go throughout the afternoon. Or it's going to be in the, from four o'clock in the afternoon, something like that, to I think eight in the evening or something like that. Just look online. There's spots that you sign up for. F- figure out what's best for you, best for your friends, your family. Come together, make an evening of it. We'll have communion on that evening together. It's going to be a beautiful experience. You can linger longer in certain areas. You can just take it in and contemplate that will prepare our hearts for the coming Sunday and we'll have three gatherings on that day so note the time differences and again this is that where you get to invite somebody get in, in somebody's life it is a good time and again remember these are the last words of Christ that it is finished it is done and we have victory in Christ because of that So that's that's ahead, but now you think about Jesus' last words. Think about your last words. I know that sounds morbid transition, but think about what are gonna be your last words to be spoken about your life, about over you or that you will say about you. Uh, people today, are, I mean, they kind of think ahead. Uh, I know several people who've already bought their grave sites and they're hopefully years, decades away from, from needing them, taking up residence the, there, uh, but even go so far as to go ahead and buy their headstone and go ahead and have their headstone engraved with their name on it. And it's a little bit eerie to walk by there if you ever go and see somebody. It's like, you're still there, and you're there, and when are you going to be there? And, you know, that whole conversation. But then whenever they take it and they go ahead and put their epitaph on there, then I think, again, could be a little bit weird because you don't know how how we're going to summarize your life. You're summarizing your life before you get there. But, again, maybe that's intentional. Maybe it's like, this is what I want to be said about me. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing to kind of be forward thinking like that. Well, there are a number of grace sites out there that have some... Different statements on there that have been collected through the years. And I want to share a couple of these are real gravestones. So none of this is fake news or fake gravestones. And so, but it's interesting. Some of the things that people have written about themselves. So William Hahn died in 1980 and he says, I told you I was sick. And so if you're that person, the hypochondriac in the room, then you might want to go ahead and get your gravestone and go ahead and put that on there. Uh, because then you can prove to your family that you were sick. And again, different, different strokes for different folks. This goes back to the 1800s, this next one does. It goes back to the 1800s, By last name by Allison. It says, I never killed a man that didn't need killing. I don't know what his record was. I don't know if he is law enforcement or what, but he's justifying uh, what he does. Guy by the last name of Cook. This is a fairly new one, 2004. Ma loved Paul. Paul loved women. Ma caught Paul with two women, or two swimming. Here lies Paul. Sounds like Ma got the last word in on that one. What's going to be the last word of your life? What's going to be... Not necessarily your epitaph, but what will be said of you? Well, think about it like this. What if how I live in the present is written about my life after I live that will be remember the memory of my life forever thereafter? What if the way I'm living today and they were to write one sentence on the day after I pass away What would that one sentence say that would be the memory, the marking, the headstone of your life for the rest of all the existence of man? When we talk about margin and we talk about writing your margin manifesto, to some degree, we are writing the statement that we want to be said about our life. Maybe it's not a statement that's being said about our life. Maybe it's an aspirational manifesto that I'm not there yet. I want to get here, and this is where I'm going to turn and begin to push my life, direct my life with great intentionality to live towards this manifesto. I asked you last week as we've been talking about margin to begin to think about this because my greatest angst in any series of messages that I share, but I think even more so, leading into this series and hearing all the chatter, all the talk about all the overworked and underpaid and underappreciated and and stretched and marginless life and and exhaustion that that just bubbles up continuously in conversations, then I think, what are we going to do about it? Because if we just talk about it and we do nothing about it, then we just need to shut up and accept it. Or let's do something about it. And so we go through this entire series for three months, and we're going to land this, this plane today. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to just keep living, marginless? The margin manifesto is a way that you can put in writing the statement about your life today that you want to be remembered forever. It's being intentional about it. Now, why do we ask you to write it down? Because thoughts disentangle themselves when they move from your lips to your fingertips. Right now, if you don't write it down, it's all a bunch of little fragments of thoughts and ideas that are hanging, lingering out there in incomplete sentences. But if you take the time and you do the diligence and you give revision one, revision two, revision three, and you continue to work it and massage it, then you might land on something that you can put a stake in the ground and say, this is going to be my life. This is going to be the banner in which I'm going to live my life for. So writing it out is a very good thing. Why would we ask you then to take the hashtag margin manifesto and put it on the line, put it out there on that World Wide Web thing out there and put it out there for the whole world to see? It's because there's something about the power, the momentum, the power and the energy behind when we start seeing God do something. And what if it was a Grace Point Church that America began to take back its life? Begin to live with intentionality and margin and space for what matters most. Not what was most urgent, not what got most notifications, not what gave gave us the biggest bonus, but literally what we did is we said, this is what's most important to us, stop, period, end, sentence, now I'm going to live to this end and then if you post it and you put it out there and then your friends and your families and your cousins and your nephews and your and your high school friends from years gone by begin to see it and they begin to notice the change in you how could you inspire others to live the same so let us be a movement making church where we begin to see god bring things together probably there's no better example in our day and age if you will and some of our day and ages not even my day and age, but still the ripple effect is there, Then Martin Luther King Jr. On August 28, 1963, standing on the, Lincoln, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial before a throng of thousands above thousands of people, standing before the people and declaring in a manifesto kind of way, what did he say? I, say it with me, I have a dream. And that I have a dream statement was so powerful it captivated a nation. It was a dream. Was it a reality? No, it wasn't a reality. It was not. It was the furthest thing from a reality. So it was an aspirational manifesto. I want this to be true. I have a dream that one day this will be true. What if our manifesto was that aspirational statement of what could and should be and that I'm going to live to this end? What would that look like? Now, again, writing it out is one thing. And you got a little square on, the, on your bulletin when you came in today. And again, just like last week, it was there last week. It's there this week. It's as blank this week as it was last week. For you to write yours in whatever version and uh, edition that you're on. And throughout this time, you write it. You rewrite it. You, you, you scribble it. You, you put it together as God has been leading you and speaking to you over there. Here's the here's the key kicker on it. Writing it is not enough. Putting it on Facebook or Instagram is not enough. You then have to put a plan in action. That manifesto will help you start putting feet to it, will help start putting intentionality to it. Martin Luther King did not say, I have a dream, now I'm going to go home and set my home in Atlanta and wait for the dream to become a reality. He continued to march. He continued to speak. He continued to advocate for it. It began to consume him. We have to say, I have a dream. Or I, this is my manifesto. I can say all day long that I want to give, as you've heard me say recently, quite often, that I want to give God my first and my best. I want to give God my first and my best. I've been saying it to you. You need to give God your first and your best. How many of you all have heard me say that? Raise your hand. Giving God our first and our best is because He deserves our first and our best. Now, if I don't have time to give God because I have time given to everything else, then there's a problem with that. I have an aspirational, I have a goal, I have a dream, but I don't have a reality and never will I have a reality. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I have to start putting things in place. And when it comes to generosity, I can say, I want to be generous with my money, but if I never put a plan in place to be generous with my money, guess what? I'll never be generous with my money. That's why, Lori, every time we get a raise or a decrease, no matter what it is, we sit down together, we look at this together, we pray over it together, we say we're going to give the first dime out of every dollar to God. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to adjust it in our our Grace Point online giving recurring gifts, and we're going to walk away knowing that every time we're paid, it's going to go out first, first, and our best is going to go to God. I can talk all day long about how I need to be a disciple maker, and you need to be a disciple maker, but guess what? If I don't make plans to make disciples which a disciple, as we call it, is a fully obedient follower of Christ, multiplying, follower of Christ. Excuse me, let me say it again. Fully obedient multiplier following Christ, Jesus Christ. Am I not multiplying? If I don't have time or space in my life, and so every Monday morning, the first day of the week, at 6 a.m., I meet with a group of men. I've been doing this for years. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying I can have all the dreams and the aspirations in the world, but if I don't put things in plan, if I don't put things in motion, it will not happen. They will only stay in the pipe. They will never become a reality. Take your Bibles and open to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Solomon, again, as we have talked before, and I cannot review the 12 chapters. We've gone through 12 chapters. Whether we read a verse or we read the entire chapter, we break it apart in three parts or or whatever. We've hit, skipped our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll end with chapter 12 today. But I want us to understand where we're at. We're not just on chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. You've got to see the full weight of this. Solomon has been the David of has been David's son, the heir to the throne. He is heir to the greatest king that had ever walked the earth. To this day, people admire David as the greatest king of Israel. And that is his son. He steps into that role. He has one prayer of God, God, give me wisdom. And in that process, he begins writing in his first letter is a love letter to his wife, Song of Solomon. We're going to look at that in the future. You pray for that because it's a beautiful letter of love between a husband and a wife and the way a marriage is supposed to be. And he writes it with such prose and poetry and beauty and wisdom. And then he comes to the Proverbs. And we have 31 chapters of Proverbs. It really is only about a third of the Proverbs that he actually wrote. Think about it like that. 31 chapters, but it's only a third. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs, 1,005 different poems. Or songs. So this guy is prolific in his writing. He has all this wisdom. It's oozing. And what is, what is a proverb? Proverbs is a short, succinct statement that is so wise and so palatable and so memorable that you can live your life, put a stake in the ground and live your life off of that. That's the kind of that's the kind of writing of the book of Proverbs. You can read a 30, 31 days. You could read a chapter a day of the book of Proverbs for the rest of your life and you would not get and glean and, and apply all the wisdom of it. It is an incredible challenge for you to take. Then he comes to Ecclesiastes right three, wrote three books of the Bible. We, we, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. This is kind of his memoirs of the last days of his life, kind of the last writings of his life. And to be honest with you, he has some pretty deep down dark spots in Ecclesiastes because he made some bad decisions. Even though he was great, great in wisdom, there were some times that he made some bad decisions. And he talks about the vanity of life and the emptiness of life, but he also talks about the real sustenance of life and the real joy of life. And he comes to the very end. Now here, again, all of that writing up till now, we're in the last chapter, chapter 12, if I can get to the edge of this, chapter 12. We're gonna read the very last verse of chapter 12. And as far as we know, historically, we don't see another time that he picks up a pen and writes on a papyrus to write another word. So we're reading literally the last words of Solomon to our knowledge just to elevate it today. Now let's look at chapter 12. When he's calling us to reflection, he's calling us to this and he's calling every last one of us. It's not whenever you get to the end of your life and then you sit down and you write all the things about all the wisdom of, of life. He calls even students, teenagers, middle school, teenagers, Start writing out your manifesto of the aspirational life that you want to live. Don't get to the middle of your life or the end of your life and look back on your life and write about all the things you wish you didn't do. Right now, put a stake in the ground and write to the future. And I think that's what he's saying in... Ecclesiastes 12.1. And he says, remember also your creator. If you're going to remember anything, you're going to get your eyes focused on anything. You're going you're to focus your attention on anything. Focus on the one who made you. Who put the air inside of your lungs. Who put the, the, the strength inside of your body. And oh, by the way, do that when you're a youth. Don't wait till you're old. Don't wait till you're in retirement. Don't, don't, don't wait till you have a family. Do it now. So that in that context, now we keep reading and he's going to start breaking down in a very poetic kind of way where he's going with this. As you're thinking about the creator in the days of your youth, hey, by the way, get, re- get ready because we're all going to die. So again, now he gets a little more, but verse 5, he says, man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. Now notice the metaphors that he uses to describe death. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered. I feel like more of a pitcher than a golden bowl. Uh, shattered at the fountain. Or the will broken at the cistern. Or the dust returns to the earth. We know that imagery of death. As it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. There's a day that we're going to stand before God and all our spirits will stand before God in that final day of reconciliation. our accountability, I should say. And then he goes on to verse 9. And again, I'm just skipping through some of these things just to get to where we're at today. And the last words, the final words of of Solomon. And in verse 9, he says, besides being wise, the preacher, now he speaks of himself in the third person. He speaks of himself in the third person and it's kind of a unique time because it's the only time in all the Bible that anybody refers to themselves as the preacher. Solomon refers to himself as the preacher. I thought he was a king. He's a, he's a king, but he has all this wisdom. He's using it as, an, as a de- declarer of truth, as a, as a wise one who gives truth. And I like, I like what's beautiful after this. And as a pastoral team, we're actually going to look at the next few verses tomorrow in our staff meeting. But we're going to, you're going to see how he actually unearths and how he sort of sifts out and how he brings out truth to make the Proverbs. It's almost his recipe, if you will, to making of a proverb. And then we come to verse 13. I fast-tracked all the way to verse 13. Now, the last words the last chapter, the last letter that was written, the last book that was written by Solomon. He says, in the end of the matter, the end of the matter, all has been heard. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Let me just sum it all up for you is what he's saying. Let me take all my Proverbs, all my wisdom, all my writings. Let me just put it down into just the very brass tacks. This, these are the crypt notes to the test of life. This, He's going to sum it all up in the way the the the." the, uh, the Christian standard Bible puts it like this. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, you want to know what the conclusion of life is? You want to sum all of life up? What he says next is absolutely paramount if you're going to write a manifesto for your life because he's going to give us the sum total of life. And there are two components, and we'll break them down. And really quickly, it's six words. You miss you blink, you will miss them. Six words, that's it. You get this down in your life. You've got it. The very first component is that you embrace the awe and the wonder of God. Now, I I know that's probably not what you would have put as, okay, if I'm going to write my manifesto, I need to put this over to the side and make sure I'm filtering it. This is the template that I'm filtering through. But yes, we need to put this over to the side and we need to filter it. it. Does my life embrace the awe and the wonder of God? The phrase that he uses is he just challenges us to fear God to live in awe of God, to live in reverence of God, to live in utter respect of God. This is not fear of God as, and I need to be afraid, for, I'm shaking in my boots. There may be times for that. The fear of God is used throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Primarily in the Old Testament. Doesn't mean it's not relevant. It's an attitude, it's a perspective on life. It's the deep down feeling about who God is and who I'm not. It's looking and, and understanding that this universe, the creator that he refers to in verse 1, is he's the one who made it. He's the one who sustained it with his breath. He's the one who made me. He's the one who formed me in my mother's womb. He's the one who gave me breath to live. He's the one who gives me life to live. He's the one that gives me purpose to live. He's the one that gives me redemption to, to, to live again. Take that and hold it delicately and with awe and trembling. Because it's a beautiful reality. But I'm afraid we've lost our all in our overstimulated, over-notified, over-educated, over-informed, over-entertained world. We have so many other things, pyrotechnics of a movie, the beauty of art that draws us away from the awe of God. Some people paint God as this mean God with a, with a paintbrush that he has, he has a fiery bolt in his hand. And he's ready to zap us down. Some people paint God as just this loving God who would never do anybody any, any, any bad or give anybody a bad day. Neither is right. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. This is the one who makes the lion lie down with the lamb. He is all of grace and all of power and all of strength and all of beauty. He is, he is omnipresent. He is imminent. He is imminent. He is transcendent. He is nearby. He is far off. He is large, but yet he is intimate next to us. He is in time, but he is beyond time. He is full of holiness, wrath, and justice. At the same time, he is full of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. You cannot contain him in a box. You cannot hold him down. You cannot make him small. But yet, I'm afraid, that's what we do. And here's a problem in our culture of racing here and there, is racing does something. When you are racing through life, you lose the wonder of God. That's why I'm saying we've got to make time for what matters most Because when you have wonder, that requires reflection. That requires appreciation, meditation. It requires margin. It requires you slowing down long enough to enjoy the beauty of God's creation, the splendor of His majesty. But when we're racing around and being entertained so quickly, we lose that. We need to come back to that. I want a Habakkuk 1-5 church. I want to be a Habakkuk 1-5 individual where I look among the nations. I observe. I am astonished. I have wonder. Because I, we realize that God is doing something in our days that you would not believe even if you were told. When's the last time you've been in wonder of God? The last time you took your breath away. This fear of God phrase again stumbles a lot of people, causes a lot of people to fall because they just don't, they can't conceptualize it. But again, it's the wonder, it's the awe, it's the magnitude of God. Let me just read off real quick. In fact, I want you to read with me some of the references in scripture that refer to the fear of the Lord. So read them with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? You better get in touch with the fear of the Lord because the next one, Job 28, 28, it says the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Keep reading with me. The fear of the Lord lengthens life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord leads to life. You see this common theme here? There's life, there's extension, there's beauty, there's majesty, there's, there's, there's a fullness of life whenever there's a fear of the Lord. Here's another one. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Don't just fill your pockets with coins and dollars. You want treasure? Embrace and appreciate and worship the wonder and awe of God. Here's another one. The fear of the Lord, security. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. You know what I've realized about my life? Oh, here's another one. The fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. You know what I've realized about my life? I was reflecting on it this week in preparing this. I'm going to give myself 1%. But 99 times out of 100, of the sins that I willfully commit, 90 time, 99 times out of 100, it's because I don't fear God. I've just lost that sense of responsibility. Oh, God's out there. I know He sees it all. He knows it all. But I can look at this site and it's just between me and my computer. I can go a little over budget. You know, I'm a grown man. I'll pay for it later even though I know God and Lori and they're not always the same, but I need to be (laughs) unified there. Um, 99 times out of 100, I've lost my fear of God. When I get stupid, it's because I've lost my fear of God. That's big. The fear of the Lord, another one, Psalm 19.9. The fear of the Lord is clean. You know, about being refreshed and made right and made clean and made whole, there you go. Enter into the awe and the wonder of God. The fear of the Lord brings confidence, Job says. I like what Eugene Peterson says probably about every time I read him. It's like a pastor speaking to a pastor, a pastoring of a pastor. He says, the fear of the Lord, the reverence might be a better word, awe. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe God in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is the response that we have toward Him. What we feel about Him. Will we let God be as He is, majestic and holy and vast and wondrous? Or will we always be trying to whittle Him down to the size of a small mind and insist on confining Him Within the boundaries that we are comfortable, and refuse to think of Him, other than the images that we can, can that that are that we are convenient to our lifestyle, we whittle God down. We whittle God down. Do you live with a life-sized God, twenty-four-seven life-sized God, or do you live with a domesticated, whittled-down pocket God? That whenever you need a little help from God, you pull him out of your pocket, you rub him like a rabbit's foot. You might even blow a kiss at him. And then you stick him back in your pocket, nice and controlled and contained so he doesn't disturb you and he doesn't disturb others. And he doesn't make you uncomfortable. And you might even at times leave him out of your pocket intentionally. Or is he an all-consuming God to you? If we spend our lives being wooed and wowed by the world and all its demands, we won't have space to be wooed and wowed by the God of the universe. I was thinking in this week's preparation, Mike, what about you? When's the last time you have been wowed by God? It got me thinking about how many times in my life have I been wowed by God? just blown away by his power. I can remember a time living in Zambia for four years as missionaries. We saw multiple times where God worked, but there was one time in particular I can remember when we drove about four to five hours on beaten down road, less than, less than road for sure, to a little village in the southwest, southeast corner of Zambia called Sienkwakwani. You won't even find it on a map. Find Siempondo. Go to Siempondo and go east, and then you'll find Siemporquani. Cien, uh, Cien, I can remember going into that village, and I can remember being told by the village headman that I was the very first white man ever to come to that village, which is scary and exciting all at the same time. I can remember walking through the village, and little kids would come up with my hairy arms, and they would just pull the hair on my arms, see if they could pull it off. I guess they thought I was a gorilla or something—a case for evolution. But I can remember also being in that village and telling the story from Genesis to Exodus, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through where Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and how, how back in the Old Testament, how they needed a, a, a lamb to put on the door face to cover them in the Exodus. That was back before. And then we came to Isaiah and then I can remember making it all the way into the New Testament and talking about the need of a lamb, the need of a lamb. And I can remember this one lady, she didn't have her two front teeth. That was the way they did. In the Tonga people years ago, they'd knock out their two front teeth so that slave traffickers would not come by and pick them up because they were considered unhealthy. And so her two front teeth were knocked out. And she stood up. She said, I don't have a lamb. I don't have a lamb. And I said, sister, you have a lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is your lamb. And I remember the light in the village just began to glow as people began to give themselves to following Jesus. I can remember one night and the candles, citronella candles all around, campfire in the middle. I can remember standing up and telling more and more of the stories of the Bible. And villagers just gathered around the fire to stay warm and to hear close. But I can remember my national partners who were with me coming up and whispering in my ear, said, just beyond the firelight, just beyond the firelight, there are people people from this village that are demon-possessed that are exercising their spirits and they're calling you out there. And I can remember having this tremendous amount of confidence. Remember Job, what Job said about the fear the Lord brings confidence? I can remember thinking, I'm okay. Even if I'm not okay, I will be okay because my God is bigger than their God. And I just kept teaching and kept teaching in that village and more and more people. And to this day... To this day, there is a church in that village 17 years later that's preaching the gospel of Christ. That is whenever you experience the fear and the awe of God, it just blows your mind. I said, I want more of that, God. I can remember whenever we started Grace Point 17 years ago, I had friends in the ministry saying, Mike, what are you doing? There's a lot of better places. I recommend you to this church, that church. They're going to send my resume out. It's like, no, it's not a resume thing. I, need, I don't need a job service. I don't need a job headhunter or, he said that God's calling us to do this and I read the statistics, the failure rate and all that kind of stuff and starting churches and the lack of support for starting churches. And I can remember all of those chances and fears and anxiety of, I, I don't know, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. And the fear, the fear, the fear that kept rising up. And I had to push it down because greater is he that is in me than he's in the world. I had to remember that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, he's greater than all that this world. So he's just going to press on through. And I tell you what, there's not a Sunday that I stand before you. And I know it's different when you're sitting in that seat if this is your first time with us today. You don't see you like I see you. I see you as this is God who brought something to be today and I get to live a part of what he did today. Thank you for being a part of that. But now here's a question to you. Will you be a part of the future of seeing God at work? Of the wow and the awesome power of God at work? I can remember two, three weeks ago. This is the most recent. Walking in Athens among refugees. If we talked and shared the gospel with 30, it's probably more like 60. And as you look at these faces, these are faces that you'll not see online. We're not going to put names in places with these people because we can't because of security reasons. Every one of them came from either Iraq, Afghanistan, or Syria. Every one of them left their country either as a persecuted follower of Christ or became a follower of Christ along the way. And there are more stories that I will unpack in the days ahead. But I just want you to know that as I'm talking to these people, there is one common thing that comes up with each one of them, especially those that left as Muslims and made their way and encountered Christians in the gospel along the way and then came to the safe country of Greece and Athens where the gospel can be shared openly and how they're so receptive and how if I heard it once, I heard it. I can count three times in an unscripted, unrehearsed manner when they would say to me, Mike, I had so much, I had a business, I had homes, I had cars, I had house help, I had so much. And I lost it all in the war. I lost it all to the Taliban. I lost it all to fighters. See, I don't look at refugees as as future terrorists. I see them as people with stories. And when I hear their stories about how they came to faith in Christ and they will tell you this. And again, I've heard it once, I heard it three times in one trip. Mike, I have less today in this world, but I have more with Jesus than I ever had before. Liz Hulk, who was on our, on our trip, shared with me just in, at the coffee shop before coming into this service about a, a, a Muslim lady that she's in a daily conversation sharing the gospel with to this very day. And she said she went to church, listen to this, for the first time today back in Athens. And this is what she said. My heart is different because of being there today. What was she just saying? She just encountered the presence of God. Not because she was with, not she's she was in a church building, because the gospel was being shared. See, don't miss this. Marginless people wander through life and they look back going, where did all, where did all go? what's it all mean? People with margin for God wonder in life. They wonder in life. Where God is at work, they get to be a part of that. Number two, humble obedience to God. Humble obedience to God. Two things. I love love the simplicity of Solomon here. (laughs) 3,000 proverbs, three books later, 12 chapters later. He sums it up in two statements. I love the simplicity of it. I like crypt notes. Lori will send me to the store for four items. Guaranteed, I will forget one, okay? Guaranteed. Third one's a roll of a dice, 50-50. I will always remember two, okay? You should be able to remember two when you leave here today, okay? These two, focus on them. The first thing we need to do is fear God. We need to live in an awe and a reverence of the power and the wonder of God, okay? Number one. But number two, he says, keep his commandments keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. There it is. That's it. That's the summary of life. We do that. Listen, listen, listen. Don't, don't ever miss this part. Never, ever, 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 ever get these out of order. Okay? These are sequential. You fear God This is this internal relationship connection with the wonder and the beauty and the power and the majesty and the redemption of God. You encounter God internally and you express Him externally. You get these out of order, you'll get things all messed up. You'll be a hot mess. You get them out of order and what you'll have is religion. That's what you have. I got to do this and if I do this, then God will love me. Do this, God will love me. See, we kind of get it when we get when we get into religion. Religion says this: "Do and you will be. Do and you will be." That's not at all what he's saying here. He is saying, "I want a relationship. Be, and you will do. Fear me. Live in awe and wonder of God. Fear God. Live in this dynamic, powerful." ever-changing, all-consuming relationship with me. And from that, let flow from your life living in obedience to God. Realizing that God's not this cosmic killjoy trying to take away all the joy of your life. The Ten Commandments have made people like that, the moral codes and conducts, the ethical principles and precepts of Scripture. People look at that and they go, oh man, I don't want anything to do with that. That's just a bunch of rules and regulations. I don't want to be part of religion. I don't either. Join the club. But what I want to be a part of is a relationship with God that will wow me, woo me, consume me, where I will want. I will want to obey Him because I love Him. I told you a few weeks ago about, it took me 10 years to become bilingual in my marriage. Know Lori's love language, speak Lori's love language. Language has always been hard for me. We need to become bilingual in our relationship with God. We love it when God gives to us, but God loves it when we obey Him. And we understand that He is looking out for us. If you love me, John 14, 15 says, you will keep my commandments. But notice it starts with a love relationship, and then it moves to an action. It starts with a heart, and then it moves to your feet and your life that you live out. If you ever get those out of order, you'll make religion out of Jesus and Jesus was never intended to be that. So we're here today and I we close the book on Ecclesiastes. But in your life, will you live with margin? Will you create space for what matters most in your life? I ask you two questions. Do you have awe Do you have wonder? Do you have fear of God in your life? Do you have that? If you don't, my friends we got to start there. we got to start with the love relationship in this room. There's going to be across the landing. There's going to be across the front pastoral team members and wives and prayer partners and deacons. And you go to them and you just say, I don't know what to say, but I know I need Jesus. I know I need that love relationship. I don't have that. I have religion. I need Jesus. I need that love relationship. I want to fear Him. I've lost the fear. I've lost the wonder. I've lost the awe of God. But here's another question. What is your next step of obedience? Next step of obedience. I don't know what it is for you. It's open-ended, right? You you don't know what's going to happen after the next step. You just got to take the next step. I love when it says in Scripture that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Well, how can you go out not knowing where you're going? Because you're going out in faith. And it was by faith, Abraham, even Abraham was justified. Are you willing to take the next step not knowing where you're going? That may mean, like it will mean, some major adjustments in your life. Creating space for what matters most. Let's pray together. Our prayer partners move to their areas. Be ready. We're going to give you space to either write, to stand and sing, to go to somebody and pray with them. Father God, you know our hearts. We cannot hide. May we be filled with wonder. May we be consumed by you. And in being consumed by you, may we walk in obedience to you out of a deep awe and reverence that you, God, know what is best and you know the plans you have for us. May we write statements today that people will read on our epitaphs May they see in our lives, declarations today of who we are in you and who you are through us. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name.